Martin Luther was trapped. Sylvester Prierius, the Pope's personal counselor, had just issued a tract rebuking Luther on the subject of papal power. On top of that, Luther's own noble, Frederick the Wise, had recently requested Luther back off his positions for the sake of peace. On the one hand, Luther couldn't agree to Rome's ideas on papal power without denying Christ's power. But on the other hand, to continue to resist the Pope could result in action against Frederick. Luther saw one way out. If he could convince the German nobility that the Bible gave them the theological authority to resist the Pope, he could turn the tables on Rome. So, Luther began his open letter to the Christian nobility, a document that would forever change the power structure in Germany and the world. I'm Mike Yeagley. And I'm Evan Gertner, and this is Grace on Tap. Now, Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to a review of the history and content of the documents of the Lutheran Reformation all over a nice cold beer. Today's episode is going to focus on the background of Luther's open letter to the Christian nobility that's written in 1520. And we'll also be covering a little bit, I think, the first section of the open letter to the Christian nobility uh, in, in this episode. The first wall. Luther has three walls that he, ta- he tackles there, and we're going to cover the first one. So when Luther posted the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg, uh, he, he, was a, he was a biblical studies professor at, at the University of Wittenberg. And he thought it was just going to be a sidebar discussion between academics on the rightful place of indulgences in Roman Catholic theology. It's not entirely clear how it happened, but the 95 Theses went from church door to being distributed throughout Europe within a couple weeks. Over the next two and a half years, Luther would continually request a church council to to formally discuss his concerns. Now, those of you who are thinking about church council, you might think of the Committee of Outreach, the Committee of uh, Fellowship, the Facilities Guy, the Treasurer. Yeah, if anybody's worked on any of these church councils, you know, yeah, that's not the kind of council he's talking about. The kind of council he is looking for is an ecumenical council of the bishops of the church that would gather together and seek to reform the church. The notion was that when the church gathered together in council the Holy Spirit would be at work to lead them to a salutary decision that would bring reform to the church. Now, Luther didn't just want to discuss indulgences. He wanted to discuss the whole structure of scholastic theology, which was the Roman Catholicism's foundational theological system ever since it was introduced by St. Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s. The Roman Catholic Church, however, had really no interest in, in discussing the proper role of scholastic theology, they just came back and said, Luther, you need to revoke, you need, you know, recant what you've said because it's not in line with what we believe. So by 1520, Luther had given up on the Catholic Church ever uh, engaging in a serious discussion on the issues of scholastic theology. So he decided to finally write an attack on Roman Catholicism's political power. Uh, he recognizes that the that this political power comes primarily from the Pope's ability to use the moral high ground to appeal to the various nobles who each had their own small armies, and you know Luther's thinking that's that's going to sort of undercut the Pope's power, his ability to actually get things done on the ground in Germany. So he needs to have two purposes accomplished. First is 
The nobles need theological support for their resistance to the Pope's initiatives. They want to be able to make political and military decisions based on their own understanding of Scripture. There is, among the nobles, a growing desire for the German people to be able to speak for themselves. But it's hard to speak for yourself when the loudest room in the loudest voice in the room is the Pope. And so how can you give a voice to the nobles without making them feel like they're disobeying God? So, and of course, all of this, the second part of this is if, if the nobles are, are empowered, then they, then they have the authority, they, through scripture, they have the moral authority to protect Luther. So Luther's, Luther's going to save his own neck by empowering the, the nobles. Because as the nobles gain confidence that they can act against the Pope, then that means they can act in protection of Luther. Right. So, now, Luther, Luther wrote the, the open letter to the Christian nobility in, I think, two weeks. It was, uh, obviously, he had been thinking about this for a long time. But, you know, he finally, you know, he, as far as scholars were have been able to map out exactly when he started and when he ended, it seems like a two-week span there. Uh, he, he got it out to uh, Nicholas von Armsdorff. In late June of 1520. Now the the Pope, just a few days earlier, I think June 15th, just that same week, roughly within a week, the Pope had just signed Exerge Domine, which we talked about in the last episode. These are two planets orbiting each other, unaware of what each is writing, though. As Luther writes the open letter to the Christian nobility in June of 1520, uh, it gets published in August of 1520. Um, there is not among Luther and his um, his friends' awareness that the Pope is preparing to excommunicate him. I mean, he should know. He, well, it's not a coincidence, though, because, you know, first of all, you had the Leipzig debate with John Eck in the summer of 1519. You know, Mike, you're getting here, but I'm really starting to think of, say, like seventh grade math, where you've got one train leaving Leipzig, <laughs> heading 100 miles to Rome, and that's John Eck. And then you've got another train leaving Leipzig, heading to Wittenberg, going 100 miles an hour. It looks like they're going different directions, but they are in a collision course. Yeah, yeah now, the... the <laughs> the 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 little metaphor there sort of breaks down because they are in a collision course. This is some sort of strange physics that's going to put these two in. in because a, they both a, leave Leipzig. John Eck leaves Leipzig. Yes. And Martin Luther leaves Leipzig. Eck goes to Rome, and Luther goes back to Wittenberg. Now, what we're going to do? I'm going to map out here, but what we do know about what happened between Luther and Frederick the Wise and John Eck. And why Luther sort of had a pretty good idea of what was happening. Although he did not know, he certainly did not know Exerge Domine was on the verge of being released. He had an idea something was up. When he first gets the rumors of Exerge Domine, he thinks it's a false letter written by Eck. Um, under, uh, yeah, after it was written, after, after it, was it was released. Written. After, after Exerge Domine is released... You know, Luther thinks it's a joke. But anyway, let's go back. So you have Leipzig, the Leipzig debate. Episode 12. Uh, episode 12. Uh, and so Luther, this, you know, we said, we said actually... By vote that, of the debate, he lost the debate. Well, kind I, of, right? I, I, I read someplace, and I, I don't know which is right, because I'm, 
I'm hearing now that the the part of the reason Eck was so angry is that the judges refused to say that who won. But for a while, the scholarship is saying Eck won because he got Eck. Uh, Eck got Luther to talk yes. about more than just indulgences. Now, and in he that got case, Luther to talk about papal authority. In, in, in that case, absolutely, Eck won. Eck was able to successfully tie Luther to a known heretic. And so that in that way he won. But the judges refused to give Eck the win. And so in Leipzig, the University of Leipzig refuses to give Eck the win. But the universities in Louvain and Cologne uh, do. Yes. So so Eck is happy with that. that the, and so he takes those, Louvain and Cologne, their... Their, their uh, declarations the, of victory. Their declarations of victory. And he takes those to Rome with him. Says, see, this is what's going on. Now, in the fall of 1519, Luther unintentionally has increased his reputation as a controversial person when he released several sermons and treatises that address uh, his concerns with the sacraments. Now That's we talk, episode 13. Episode 13. So, uh, now in December of 1519, now, so now we're coming up closer to this, this period, in December, Frederick the Wise hears that John Eck has been called to Rome. And so he sort of sees that something is going on in Rome that they're pulling Eck in. And so Frederick the Wise realizes that there's something up. And in March of 1520, that same university, uh, Louvain and University of Cologne, that had decided to give the victory to Eck, have decided to condemn Luther for his positions that he took at the debate in Leipzig. So now you've got Frederick the Wise who is able to read the tea leaves much better than Luther, obviously. And Frederick the Wise is seeing that the noose is tightening. Things are getting bad. And so he goes to Luther and he, well, like we mentioned once before, we don't think Luther and Frederick the Wise but ever But through met. Spilatin. But through Spilatin. Tries to get Luther to back down. And, and this echoes what happened in 1518 after uh, von Miltitz. There had been this uh, negotiated silence. And the thought was, if we can just be quiet for a little while, I think Frederick the Wise believes that X urgency will go away and people will actually talk about the issues. So, but Luther refuses. Luther absolutely refuses to back down. Because to, be, uh, to back down, to be quiet, would deny the truth of God's word. So spring of 1520... Luther gave a couple of hints that he was getting to write an attack on the Roman Catholic Church. Now, to understand this, we need to be talking in May of 1520. Okay, May of 1520, Augustine von Elveld, a Franciscan friar, wrote a defense of papal power. Now, he originally wrote it in Latin, but then he released it in May in, in German. German. And Luther is very upset about this because now the common folk are hearing about it. Luther didn't worry about the Latin version. No. And, and why is this controversial? Because Luther has proposed that the authority for doctrine is in Scripture, not in the papal office. And at the end of uh, his response to Alveld, uh, he, he, he hints in his response to Alveld that he has an attack on Rome coming up. So, so already Luther is sort of sending, telegraphing out that, you know, leave me alone. I'm, I've got something that's going to be a big problem for Rome. I, I, I'm, I, I'm locked and loaded. Just you know, be careful. But, of course, Rome doesn't care. So, uh, now... When but this does show that the, the growing controversy is rooted in not just issues of abuse like indulgences, but is rooted in the very structure of power and authority in the church. 
Yeah. And this shows up uh, earlier in episode eight. We covered the investiture controversy. Uh, Mike, what was the investiture controversy? Well, the investiture controversy was basically you had a, a debate about who gets to uh, call a, a bishop for one of the local bishoprics. So is that bishop installed by the Pope and by the, by the Roman Church, or is the bishop installed by the local nobles? And and so this was a big deal. The right of a local parish to call their local pastor, and, and, and this is in or their local bishop. Yeah. And now the problem was was that the the local nobles were using this and sort of buying and selling these bishoprics, mm-hmm. and, and it was ended up being uh, the yeah. investiture controversy is kind of messy because it's got some theology rooted in it and the right of uh, the people to call their own pastor or their own bishop. Yep. Or the right of the Pope to place um, in the lives of the people a bishop he approves. So there's some theology going on there. But it got pretty messy also because lots of money and bribery of land and power is involved. So so the Pope comes in, or the Roman Church comes in, and they say, you know, this has become corrupted. It belongs, you know, we need to have this handled just as a, as a theological and religious and spiritual issue. Let us do it. And the, actually, they, they, the people said, okay. Well, because then, they were also tired of the abuses. So the investiture controversy ends with, uh, in the early Middle Ages, really giving a lot more power to the Pope. So the Pope ends up being able to do this, but then he does the same thing. He ends up selling the, the bishoprics. He ends up selling cardinals. He end up, and, and it ends up being just as corrupt as it was under the nobles. And, and so we are left with this moment where both secular powers and the spiritual powers exercised through the office of the Pope have grabbed power for themselves and done it poorly. So I'm going to read right now, I'm going to read what Luther wrote in his response to Augustine von Elveld on his, uh, on, uh, in response to his defense of papal power. So this is, this is Luther speaking here. He says, I should be, and this is going to be a little bit long, so, but uh, I should be truly glad if kings, princes, and all the nobles would take hold and turn the knaves from Rome out of the country and keep the appointment to bishoprics and benefices out of their hands. How has Roman avarice come to usurp all the foundations, bishoprics, and benefices of our fathers? Who has ever read or heard of such a monstrous robbery? Do we not also have the people who need them? While out of their out of our poverty, we must enrich the ass drivers and stable boys, nay, the harlots and knaves at Rome, who look upon us as nothing else but errant fools and make us the object of their vile mockery. So he goes on, and what was interesting at the very end of this, he says, um, oh, oh, the pity that kings and princes have so little reverence for Christ and his con- honor concerns them so little that they allow such heinous abominations to gain the upper hand. Uh, and then he goes, uh, no hope is left on earth except, except in the temporal authority. So right here, he's, he's hinting that he's going to appeal to the temporal authorities, which are the, the nobility, the people who have the military so the temporal, except in the temporal authorities, about this, if this Romanist attacks me again, I will say more later, let this suffice for a beginning. So already Luther is hinting that, okay, there's this corruption that's happening. The Romans are, the, the Roman church 
is is uh, putting bishoprics, selling bishops, selling cardinals, selling this, selling that. So the fight has so far been within the church. Yes, but and now Luther is proposing he's that hinting. if you keep he's hinting, hinting, if you keep pushing me, I'm going to appeal to the temporal authorities to side with me. The temporal authorities who happen to have militaries. So this is this is this is a little bit of a hint of what he has coming. And this is a challenge for today. When do we use the sword to advance our theological positions? Uh, yeah, this is this is very very to to this day. This is very very muddy territory. I, I don't so personally. I don't we, think, yeah, before we start talking about swords and tanks and religious armies, um, let's look at this open letter to the Christian nobility. Not as much uh, permission for. Uh, armies to attack on religious grounds. That's true. And instead, look at how Luther is seeking to balance the temporal authorities and the spiritual powers in such a way that there is a restoration of balance here. And I think we'll get into that later. You know, mm-hmm. this is, but that's a, it's, a, it's a great, you know, as we're going through this, Luther is going to be very careful in how he does this so that one side is not more powerful than the other. Yeah. And and we'll, we'll just... Well, we'll, nobles even struggled with this confusion because their attack against the peasants uh, later in 1525 kind of comes out of... Or well, the peasants. Luther's position... Is, if Luther's given us permission to use our sword, let's use it. And then suddenly they really do. Yeah. So this is... This continues to be... Starting with this... Well, this is just a hint at what Luther has in store. So we'll, we'll let's let's go... Let's, let's look some more. No. So Aveld, did he respond to Luther? No, he doesn't. Instead, Sylvester Prius responds to Luther with a document entitled Epitome of a Reply to Martin Luther. Uh, the word epitome kind of just means a short or brief. Now, we, we talked a little bit about Prius in, I think it was episode two, uh, when, when he was the one, when the 95 Theses came out, the Pope gave it to him, and he was part of the team that looked through him the first time and said, oh yeah, this is a problem, this is a problem, this is a problem. So that, that's Prius is a counselor to the Pope. So Prius again asserts that there is a problem with Luther's response to Aveld, and it is an attack on papal power. So so Prius puts this out, this, this, firm, this bold assertion of papal power. And Luther goes through and he, he responds... And he takes it and he annotates it. He says, okay, point number one, blah, 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 blah. Point number two, blah, 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 blah. And he's, he's basically building his defense against Prius, Using Prius' words against him. Using Prius and, and actually using scripture and Prius's writings against Showing him. Showing the weakness of his arguments when balanced against scripture. Yes. Now, farewell, unhappy, now, is, hopeless, blasphemous Rome, right? Now, this is, this is where, in the preface to Luther's reply... Luther says, And now farewell, unhappy, hopeless, blasphemous Rome. The wrath of God has come upon you in the end as you deserved. And not for the many prayers which are made on your behalf, but because you have chosen to grow more evil from day to day. We have cared for Babylon, and she is not healed. Let us then leave her, that she may be the habitation of dragons, specters, ghosts, and witches, and true to her name of Babel, an everlasting confusion, an idol of avarice, perfidy, apostasy, of cynics, lechers, robbers, sorcerers, and endless other impudent monsters 
a new pantheon of wickedness. A new pantheon of wickedness. Now that's 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 not them. There's fighting words. Well, and some of you have heard the words of Babylon there. Um, and the Luther's going to write the Babylonian captivity. He attached a, a symbol of Rome being the new Babylon, the the place of our enemy that would hold us enslaved and prevent us from being able to worship in the true Jerusalem. Now, this is the first time that I know of that he really calls uh, Rome the new Babylon. Yeah, yeah. This is this is uh, so. So you get and I, you know. Like I said, uh, to begin with, this it's not a coincidence that in June of 1520, within a week of each other, the Roman Catholic Church puts out Exerge Domine, Luther puts out the open letter to the Christian nobility. Both of these things happen almost simultaneously, independently, but they both sides could see, you know, they yeah. they knew this was this was building. It was not a big surprise. Well, and using Babylon um, is really starting to exercise into this, uh, is, is starting to move the argument into what is wrong with papal authority. And by attaching the papal authority to Babylon, he, he is making a statement that the papal authority is preventing the people from worshiping God. Because in 587 BC, the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They knock down the walls of Jerusalem and they take the leaders of Jerusalem away from Judah and they take them to Babylon. And when the temple gets destroyed, the Babylonian captivity comes a time when the people don't know where to worship. Uh, this is the, 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 the first temple. The first temple, the one that David built, uh, I mean Solomon built, it is the temple where the people went to worship God and the Babylonians destroyed the temple. And in destroying the temple, the people are left to wander and wonder where they should worship. So to attach Rome to Babylon is to say that Rome has destroyed the temple. Now in the New Testament, the temple is Jesus. They have sought to destroy the new temple and they have left the people wandering and wondering where should they worship God. So when he says Babylon and he says Rome, the people are supposed to get the hint, Rome, you're the bad guys. Okay. Okay. So so the open letter, we're going to get, uh, in my research, uh, like it's an I attack. It's, a, it's an attack written in two weeks, um, an attack on papal power by appealing to the state. But the, the first paragraph is not at least the copy of the the open letter to the Christian nobility that I have was written to Nicholas von, uh, von Amsdorf. Yes. So who's he? So just the way the letter starts to the esteemed and reverend master Nicholas von Amsdorf, my sentient of Holy scripture and canon of Wittenberg, my special and kind friend from Dr. Martin Luther, the so, peace and grace of God be with you, esteemed reverend and dear sir and friend. So he's not writing to uh, anybody in the nobility. He's writing the first letter. The first part of it is to this Nicholas von Amstor. So, so this guy, who is he? He was a theologian at Winburg, a son and grandson of nobility. He sent it to von Amstorf for review prior to publishing about a month and a half later. Okay. Um, the actual letter will then get addressed to the emperor, Charles V. Okay. But now, now the thing having is a letter sent to a faculty member is uh, a way to have it uh, shared 
with uh, a little bit of plausible deniability until it's fully tested the waters as well. Because you can say, well, this is just an academic letter being sent between friends as we're trying to sort out issues. So that if there's something that comes up in the letter that maybe he's going to change a little bit later, that's just a pre-traft version. Well, and I think this is pure conjecture on my part, but it, it makes sense that it would go to Nicholas van Amstorf because he comes from nobility. Yeah, that's so, another good point. So he's he's he, he's familiar with nobility. Also, he's a theologian. He's a very learned theologian. So you've got both sides of that where he can sort of look at it from both sides and say, yeah, you know, looking at it from, you know, I'll put my, my nobility hat on. Yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. You know, put his theologian hat on. Okay, I get it. Yeah, and so you've got this... This benefit of this one person that Luther consented to, a very knowledgeable person who's very knowledgeable on the on the nobility. It's the right person to send it to. Absolutely. Now, so the way he starts, uh, Mike, I just want to read you uh, kind of the first real paragraph. It says, the time for silence is past and the time to speak has come as Ecclesiastes says. I am carrying out our intention to put together a few points on the matter of the reform of the Christian estate to be laid before the Christian nobility of the German nation in the hope that God may help his church through the laity, since the clergy to whom this task was more properly belonged have grown quite indifferent. I am sending the whole thing to you, Reverend Sir, that you may give an opinion of it, and where necessary, improve it. Okay. Okay. So I think the the couple of critical things there. First of all, he quotes Ecclesiastes, you know, to everything, turn, turn, turn. Was it the birds who did that? Uh, neither one of us could sing, so we'll leave it at that. But uh, yeah. uh, it, it's basically saying, you know, it's time to, to move on this. And then the second thing that jumps out at me when you read that was the, um, the, the, the idea that we're going to appeal to temporal authorities. Mm-hmm. That's what this is going to be about. And this is, again... Going back to what we just spoke about, you know, we're going to go to the people who have military power because the people who have spiritual power have abused their position. They have not done what they need to do. Somebody needs to to basically pull them into line. And you're the only one. And so this uh, three-part estate of the, the, the church, the, the nobility, and... I think the third one was the family, right? The family... Uh, he's raising up the idea that when the the church is dropping the ball, there needs to be a group that steps up. And, and yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. So, the, what's the outline of this? It's about a hundred pages long. Um, inside Luther's works, if you print it on eight and a half by eleven pieces of paper, it's about forty pages. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 not that long, considering. I mean, it's it's a it's a small book. It's a small book is basically what it comes down to. Now, the way it's set up is that it has a short introduction, uh, asks for humility, gives a few biblical and contemporary examples where a righteous cause was defeated through a lack of humility. And then he dives into this discussion on three walls of, quote unquote, three walls of the Romanists. Mm-hmm. So the, the the three walls of the Romanists, <laughs> which is uh, the three, and these th- are all walls that should be knocked down. That's these, are, yeah. According to Luther, these are all walls that need to be lo- knocked down. So the three theological positions that protected the Pope's power is what it really comes down to. So so the first one was the the Pope's proclamation that temporal power, the power of kings and nobility, has no jurisdiction over the church since the church stands above temporal powers. So that's the first wall. That's the first point. And so that means that the laity have no voice in yes. the church. Yes. The, the the church stands above the laity. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, when it, whatever the church says is God speaking. That's basically what they're saying. And even if it's against scripture, the laity have no appeal to scripture because... That's the second wall. All right. So second one was the Pope's position that nobody could correctly interpret scripture except the Pope and the bishops. So that meant if laity read the scripture differently than the Pope, they need to be quiet and just listen to what the Pope says. Yeah. So it's, you know, so... So the first one is the Pope's, the Pope stands above everybody else. Second one is, and don't try and go to scripture because I'm the I'm, only one that can I'm interpret the only scripture. One that can, so what's the third wall? The third wall was the Pope's proclamation that nobody could call a church council except the Pope. So, so and now this gets to the conciliary movement and who gets to bring reform to the church. The notion was that a council, when it meets, could reform the church. But if the Pope is the only one that can call a council, the Pope can keep the church in a state of, of wrong. So, so basically what it's saying, let's look at the way I think of this, is that there are, there are two mechanisms to, change, to reform the church. The first one is through, through scripture. The second one is through a council. And so what Luther is saying is that, okay... Uh, the three walls are number one, the Pope is in charge. He's above everything. And the two levers, the two mechanisms to, to change what the Pope thinks, to change the teachings of the church are shut out to everybody because, because the Pope controls those two. So it's, it's basically everything's locked down. There's really no options what the what the Roman what the Pope says. So the Pope's got the power. The Pope interprets the Scripture, and the Pope is the only one to bring the corrective power of the Council to bear. Yes. And so the Pope's not going to call a Council, and the Pope's not going to interpret Scripture in such a way that would take away his own power. Yep. And so he's not going to call a council that takes away his own power. He's not going to interpret scripture to take away his own power. So I have all the power. I'm Mr. Pope. I'm, and there's I'm, no means for reform. And yeah, I, I, these are the three walls that have been set up that Luther proposes to knock down in the open letter to the Christian nobility. And who's going to do the knocking down of these three walls? Martin Luther. He's Martin half, Luther. And, and the open letter. To, uh, well, and, and the nobility. And the nobility. He, Martin Luther is saying to the nobility, here are the three walls. I'm telling you why they're wrong. Now together, let's knock them down. So, well, let's... Now that we've sort of outlined what's coming... That's the background. That's the background. Now, in this in this episode, we're just going to cover the first wall. Because that's, that's a lot by itself. But before we get into that... Beer let, break. Beer break. So, today's beer... Is from Liberty Street Brewing Company in Plymouth, Michigan. Um, the, I actually was just at the brewery on Friday, and just to, this weekend. So, how would you describe the atmosphere? They ah. say in their website, "elegant." Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's it's a very pleasant place to sit down and have a beer. Wasn't that big? Yeah. I, I would say the place was. Um, Oh, uh, maybe, you know, 15, 20 feet across and, you know, maybe, you know, just the, uh, the, the length of the building going back, that was the bar area. And mm. then they had about that same amount of space were the, uh, the kegs, okay. the, 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 the brewing, um, the brewing kilns or whatever it is that they call those. And they so had food served there too? They did. They did. Although I didn't, I didn't have any of their food. I just had a beer, and you know. And you can also get other local restaurants to deliver food. Okay. Yeah. Is what their website knows. Pleasant. I really enjoyed, you know, sitting there at the bar. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, 
I really like going to see these small breweries around Michigan, uh, any state, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really enjoy visiting them. And so, Mike, you have gotten for us their flagship beer. Yes, yes. And it is uh, uh, a sweet beer with caramel, and uh, it is uh, balanced with some mild hop bitterness. So it's got that, that which is really, I think, the... The note of American craft beer right now. Something that's got some sweet. You'll get a lot of hefeweizens and bananas and oranges and cloves and all those vanillas and, and those sorts of things. But it's always matched with some bitter hoppiness. Yeah, Americans like their bitterness. Not quite as... I think the, the, the Brits yeah. like it even more bitter. But I haven't know. found a German beer to be bitter, though. Like a Dunkelweizen or Hefeweizen. Those... Or even much the Munich, the, yeah. the München Oktoberfest beer, they're much smoother. Um, I, it, it's interesting how American craft beers have really gone into this kind of bitterness. This beer, though, from the Liberty, is not overly bitter. I think it's just true to style. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is an amber ale. It's uh, called Red Glare Amber Ale. They have a picture of a missile uh, on the front here. Oh, so like the Star-Spangled Banner yeah. by the Rockets' Red Glare. Yeah, yeah. So this is that matches uh, with the title Liberty. I get it. Liberty Street, Rockets Red Glare. Oh, I see what you did there, brewery. <laughs> so this was. Uh, they don't really have a lot written up on the website there. Um, like I said, I, I I sat down. Not a very big place. I was surprised that. Uh, and actually, I have never seen Liberty Street Brewing Company beers out here in the Brighton area. Okay, they might be there in Canton, Plymouth. But out here, I just don't recall seeing them. So I'm glad you took a field trip to get us this beer. Uh, no, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, Cheers. Cheers. Well, let's get let's get back to it. So we, we this first wall, which states that temporal authorities like kings and the nobility have no authority over the church. That's the bad idea. That, Sometimes when I'm teaching, my wife says, "Can you remind me what's good and what's bad?" Okay. Yeah. So, so this, this is, is a bad idea that temporal authorities like kings and nobility have no authority over the church. So it, it basically, the, the the reason it's a bad idea is that, and as was demonstrated through the late Middle Ages, it opened the you know uh, you know what is it complete power uh, uh, power corrupts corrupts and absolute that. power corrupts absolutely. There we go. Thank you. So it, you know the the pope during this era had absolute power. Uh, he was not, uh, you know, the, the temporal authorities had no authority over him. And so, you know, they, the, pope, the popes in this era were well known for having children, having mistresses, uh, just all sorts of problems. Mike, one of the struggles I have with this wall that is confusing to me is that we've talked about the two kingdom theology of Luther before. And we had that John Adams saw Luther as uh, one of his sources for the separation of church and state. James Madison. James Madison. Thank you. That James Madison uh, talked about church and state. And part of his idea for the independence of the state from the church comes from Luther. And in this first wall, Luther is attacking that division. Well, I think, and this is actually a huge problem. You know, this is, this continues to be a problem. Luther, you're exactly right. Um, the, the, the issues that Luther brings up, he's saying that, that the temporal authorities need to reign in the spiritual authorities. Now, the, the, the problem is 
what are the lines here? What, what's, what's going to keep the temporal authorities from using their military might to over, overcome the spiritual authorities? And, and, and these are, these are even to this day, you know, th- these were issues that needed to be worked out over the next several hundred years. I think one way to think of this is that Luther is talking about, when he's talking about the, the spiritual realm and the nobility, he's talking about both people who are inside of a congregation. And that's a very, very good point. When, when Luther is talking, and as we get into this a little bit more, he's talking about the Christian nobility. So he's saying, uh, we'll, we'll get into it, but it's basically by virtue of your baptism, he's telling the nobility, by virtue of your baptism, you are a member of this congregation. You we are call, a priest. You are a priest. You are, you are part of the Christian congregation. You are a priesthood of all believers. And the priesthood of all believers is, well, let's, let's get into this. So, so Luther demolishes the wall of the Roman Catholic Church by elevating the work of the laity. And that's what we were kind of struggling through right there. When you elevate the laity, you are elevating people with spears. You are elevating people with swords. You are elevating people who have as their job to have an army. So what Luther says, Luther's position is that we are all priests and that the Pope, the Cardinals, the bishops, and the priests only have an office. They have a specific job to do. And and so what he's saying is that everybody who is and he, he, he quotes St. So Paul. everybody's a priest. Yes. What does that mean? Well, he, he quotes St. Paul, right? And, and so he says, and, and it's been, uh, maybe you, I, I actually meant to put that into my notes here, but uh, Paul, St. Paul in, uh, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, and then also St. Peter in uh, 1 Peter 2, and where, where the, they talk about, at least Paul talks about, we are all one body of Christ, the head, and all members one of another. Yeah, so Romans 12.1 goes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, that we all are, are presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice. That's our priesthood, is to offer ourselves consecrated as a sacrifice. So, and this is uh, Romans 12. Is what Luther and then four through five goes on. For as in one body we have many members, and the many members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So, so this is what Luther uses to say that we are all we're given these different offices, we're given these different jobs to do. But so you we got are... the pastor and the laity are different jobs, but one body. Yes. Yes. So I'm going to read read from Luther, and he says, uh, For whoever comes out of the water of baptism can boast that he is already a consecrated priest, bishop, and pope, although, of course, it is not seemly that just anybody should exercise such an office. And he goes on to say, It follows from this argument that there are that there is no true basic difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, between religious and secular, except for the sake of office and work, but not for the sake of status. They are all spiritual estates. All are truly priests, bishops, and popes, but they do not all have the same work to do. 
Just as all priests and monks do not have the same work to do, this is the teaching of St. Paul in Romans. And it gives, as I have said above, namely, that we are all one body of Christ the head and all members one of another. Christ does not have two bodies, one temporal and the other spiritual. There is but one head and one body. So the Christian nobility and the bishop or cardinal or pope are a part of the same body. Yes. There's not a spiritual body and a secular body with Christ as the head of both, but there is in the church now. Again, we're talking about the church. We're not talking about the kingdom of the world. We're talking about in the kingdom of grace, yes. there's one body. Yes. So so what Luther is saying is that there is one body and we all have these different jobs to do in this body. And if anybody in that body goes off and does the wrong job, does the wrong goes does wrong within their you know they need so, to be disciplined so if the hand starts operating like it's trying to be an elbow the foot has the ability to say to the hand you're doing the wrong thing <laughs> something along, those something lines. along that line <laughs> something along those lines Although... but we each mutually can hold one another accountable though it's not my job to do your job I can help hold you account when you're not doing your job it, it, yes it, now and what Luther gets into here is he says that there are people who have been put in place to to hold us accountable. For example, me and my work, my boss has been put in place by God to hold me accountable to my work. It's not appropriate for somebody else, you know, uh, an independent person who doesn't know the nature of my work to hold me accountable. But if you know the nature of my work, if you are have been placed in by God in that position of holding me accountable, then you have that responsibility to do that. And this is the critical thing is, okay, I can be on board with that. But when it comes time to, for the temporal authorities to hold the Pope accountable, what is the, who gets to hold the the Pope? Who holds the, who draws the line? At what point do the temporal authorities hold the point the Pope accountable? At what point is it appropriate, and at what point is it not appropriate? So Luther finished by saying, "Inasmuch as the temporal power has become a member of the Christian body, it is a spiritual estate, even though its work is physical. Therefore, its work should extend without hindrance." to all the members of the whole body, to punish and use force whenever guilt deserves or necessity demands without regard to whether the culprit is pope, bishop, or priest. So what Luther is saying here is that there are, and, and where he does have a leg to stand on, is that when the pope obviously overreaches and obviously attacks, for example, the, the whole idea of burning people at the stake when when the bible and you know when when uh christ christ talks about in the in the wheat and the tares you know in in the story of the wheat and the tares the 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 owner says nope don't pull up the 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 or the, the don't, weeds. don't pull up the weeds you know don't pull up the weeds because they might that'll just, happen on judgment day that'll That's happen for on my angels to do yeah it's not up to us to to kill heretics it's up to, you know, that's up to God. And so when the Pope oversteps by burning people at the stake, it's up to the, the temporal authorities can stop and say, no, you're not allowed to do that. And I think 
that is where you know there are points where the where the spiritual estate is obviously overstepping like in burning people at the stake so when he writes this letter to the christian nobility he has nicholas von amstorf read it um, with all of his history of nobility luther is setting off a bomb on the way that power has been structured in europe because he elevates by virtue of our baptism all of us to the same equal spot that's and right. instead of having the clergy being the royalty of the church and the lay people being the slaves he says we are all one in christ we are all together equal before god by virtue of our baptism and luther will use the bible to give the nobility the power to discipline the pope through military force now it's <laughs> it's Whoa. totally unthinkable uh, today, that a military force would come to the Vatican to discipline the Pope for something. So, you know, and, modern context: uh, Angela Merkel, uh, Prime Minister of Germany, um, sees that the Pope is teaching something wrong, and by virtue of her baptism and knowing that she has been given uh, by God the power of the sword, she brings correction to the Pope by knocking down the walls of the Vatican. Is yeah. that kind of what Luther's advocating for? No, no, and and that's sort of. The, and this is typical of Luther, right? Where where he speaks in broad terms at the you know at, at some point, and then over time he clarifies it. And so at this point, he at least that's the way I'm reading this is that he's speaking in broad terms, saying that the Pope is overstepping, and that the temporal authorities have the moral authority that they don't that they can discipline him. Maybe but he doesn't go clear in what. what maybe in this do. image of an army attacking the Vatican, which just sounds so weird today, it'd be helpful to remember that in Luther's time, the Pope just before Leo X, the Pope that's uh, Julius the, II, was Julius II, was known as the warrior Pope. He regularly used military power to achieve his goals. He led troops into battle a couple of times, wearing the armor of a knight. I mean. So to think of like the Angela Merkel with a tank and, you know, Pope Francis hiding in the Vatican <laughs> as some little peaceful guy is not the imagery that's happening in the no, 16th century. No, no. In the 16th century, you've got the Pope with, he's the one with the tank and, and he's going out and he's actually attacking different cities and, and, you know, and everybody feels a little bit uncomfortable fighting against the Pope. Well, attacking the Pope is attacking God. Yeah. And so when Luther backed up the idea that we are all equal by our baptism with Scripture, the common man, the peasants, the nobility, everybody is to gain a sense of empowerment that you have um, the ability to speak up. Yes. And now... Long-term results of this lead even to the Declaration of Independence. The, the preamble where you know Thomas Jefferson says all it's self-evident that all men are created equal. Well, Not in 1520. 1520 it wasn't self-evident. You know, in 1520 there was a lot of questions about who's more equal than the other. You know, the Pope was certainly higher in, a, higher in the godly view than, than your local peasant. So the reason that Luther is writing about equality before God that we are all one body with Christ as the head is because the nobility have been acting like they're powerless and he wants to make sure they have power in scripture to speak up. Yeah. Now the, we just referenced one of the great things that came out of this, you know, was the, you know, things like 
the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. But this, the the problems that Evan and I are sort of hashing out here. What are the lines? Who's who gets to say what? What you know? Not too long after Luther writes this, Luther writes this in fifteen twenty. In fifteen twenty four, there's the Peasants' Revolt. Thomas Munzer raises up people to say, if we're all equal before God, then we can all equally take what is somebody else's. Yeah. So I mean, you have you have total chaos, and Luther has to step into this mess. And, and well, Luther's a theologian. He's not in an economics professor, nor does he understand the political conflict that's going to rise up. The Peasants' Revolt takes Luther's theological ideas and puts it into an economical revolution that then falls flat when the Christian nobility rise up and kill the peasants. Yeah, thousands and thousands die, which in 1520, 1524, that's a huge part of the population is killed in the Peasants' Revolt. And so this is, you know, but the... You know, this is the beginning. This is the very, it's a messy beginning, absolutely. Yeah. But it's the beginning of the separation of church and state. I, I think one example I'm thinking of, Mike, is that if, if as a pastor I'm preaching a sermon and I preach something wrong, do the people in the pew have the right by virtue of their baptism to speak to me and tell me where I was wrong? I would think absolutely. Absolutely do they have that right. Now, um, Luther isn't necessarily advocating that the people come to my office with the sword and by penalty of the sword tell me to bring correction to my preaching. (laughs) I certainly hope not. But I think that one of the things that should come from this letter that Luther writes to the Christian nobility is everybody in every pew should have the confidence that they can go into their pastor's office and any time they have a question about a sermon they've heard or read a newsletter article or something their pastor has written on a blog uh, or on Facebook, that they could say to their pastor, I'm concerned with what you wrote because I think it's in conflict with Scripture. And that, Absolutely. And I think... And a pastor who then said, you know, I'm the pastor and I know better, you should leave, that pastor's wrong. That's true. That's true. And, and uh, you know... And then you can pull out the open letter to the Christian nobility and, and yeah. And then you bring your tank. <laughs> you bring your tank. So where's the Catholic Church stand? Where's the Roman Catholic Church stand on all this today? Well, if anybody has studied Roman Catholic theology, you'll find it is, uh, well, there's a lot of fine distinctions. And I can read one thing and think, oh, that's what they think. And then I read another and go, oh, that's what they think. It, no, you, the Catholic theology is truly a philosopher's theology. I it mean, takes some experience. It takes some experience. You really need to be. It needs to be studied. This is not something. It might be best studied. You know, as a Lutheran pastor, I have found when I've got questions about what I think is Catholic theology, to actually talk to a Catholic. A good, yeah, a good Catholic theologian. I, and I, I, a lot of times, I, I personally, I bring up. I have many friends who are Catholic. Many I have priests. I, I, I have a handful of good friends who are priests. And I, I have, I bring this stuff up and honestly, sometimes they're like, eh, you know, the, the, it, it, I, I wish I could, I had some really strong Catholic theologians because the, when you get this deep and when you get deep into Catholic theology and you're talking about these very fine distinctions, um, you really so need expect, if you are one of those really deep Catholic theologians and you want to talk to us, graceontap.podcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Uh, and so, um, I would, actually, I would really appreciate that. That would be wonderful. So from the Catholic Catechism, starting at section 897, they say that the laity are, quote, the faithful who by baptism are incorporated into Christ 
and integrated into the people of God are made sharers in their particular way in the priestly, prophetic, and kingly office of Christ and have their own part to play in the mission of the whole Christian church, uh, a, a whole Christian people in the church in the world. Okay, so so number one, they agree with Luther. that Baptism. By, the baptism. Baptism is the critical thing. It's by virtue of baptism that we are all one. And, and we are all, as Christians, a part of the priestly, prophetic, and kingly uh, work of Christ. Which is sort of interesting, actually. I, I, I thought that was, uh, you know, that they, they actually, the that's, you know, um, you know those are the three offices of Christ. Mm-hmm. The, the priestly, the, the prophetic, and the kingly. And so it, it was interesting that they gave all three to the laity. And that's that was sort of neat. Yeah, so departure. Points of departure are going to come up where we may not see the words of uh, one body, unity, equal. Um, and so to take a look at the catechism's guidance for the office of the priest, um, well, what, what do we have there? Yeah, um, 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 it gives Christians a priestly, prophetic, and kingly office, but they're valid only insofar as they align with the infallible teachings of the Pope. So, so you know, it, it still is... You know, yeah, you have a kingly office. Yeah, you have a priestly office. Yeah, you have a prophetic office. But you need to be aligned with the with the infallible teachings of the Pope. So the boundary uh, for your participation in this office then isn't Scripture. It's 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 a we're back to the definition of the church, which is what we talked about before. And this is really what John Eck noticed at Leipzig. Yeah, it really it always comes back to this point: the definition of the church. So Luther says that the church is defined by the sacraments and the proclamation of the word of God is found in the Bible. The Catholic Church agrees that the church is defined by the sacraments and the proclamation of the word of God, except they say that the word of God is found in the infallible teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. That's my understanding. So the the key here is uh, the lens uh, or authority of who gets to read the word of God. Because if the word of God is the boundary for where the laity participate, who gets the authority to say what the Word of God says or doesn't say? Yeah. And, and in is... the Catholic Church, they would say the magisterium teaching of the authority of the Church interprets the Word of God. And Luther would say um, the Holy Spirit is given to all of us by virtue of our baptism the privilege to be able to read the Word of God. That's right. That's right. So it, it's, it, it, and, and uh, you know, obviously the Catholic Church, if there was a Catholic theologian here, you know, I, I could almost guarantee he would say, well, if he was if he was feeling particularly, you know, mm-hmm. rambunctious, he might say something along the lines of, you know, and it's it's played out, you know, the the schismatic, you know, nature of Protestantism, where everybody has a different reading, everybody has, you know, and you, you have like all these different churches where you have all these different readings, you need something to pull all that together, and so you know, I, I you can sort of see where they're going, you know, yeah. it, it's it's like. You know, there, there is, you know, but that's, you know, Luther makes the point that there, and, and that's part of the reason I really, uh, that's why I'm Lutheran, is that the, 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 the no harm to grace. That's, you, you need to be aligned with tradition where it does no harm to grace, but that's... Yeah. The, Peter Speckard, uh, he's a pastor, uh, Indiana, um, part of the American Lutheran Publicity Bureau uh, that writes the Lutheran Forum. Um, he's talking about, uh, he's talked before about that, that desire for a teaching authority in the church. 
that there are these moments when you have people coming up with all sorts of different interpretations and you would long for someone to just walk in the room and with their gavel and say, it is settled. This is what the text says. Uh, because it can get frustrating to have so much noise in the room. Yeah. Um, and, and really, though, when we desire that, we are no longer desiring for the gospel to be the authority in our lives. We're desiring some sort of power to be the 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 worker of grace in our life. If the gospel is what creates and preserves and sustains saving life, then we have to be ready for the risk that God is making when he puts the word of God into our hearts and minds. And But if I want power to be what creates the church and preserves the church and sustains the church, then I will be okay with a teaching magisterium that's held by just a few people. Mm-hmm. I think it is an amazing statement of grace to say that God is so risky in letting his word of God be put in the hands of everybody. But he also trusts the Holy Spirit to be at work in that word to deliver to us the gospel. If you want salvation by power, then you want a magisterium authority that tells you what to think. If you want salvation by grace, then there's a lot of uh, messiness in that. Yeah, it gets very messy. It gets yeah. very messy. So, so uh, why don't you uh, give us a closing uh, summary of where we've gone? Okay. All right. Well, Luther's elevation of the common man to the same status before God as any bishop or any pope forever changed class dialogue in Germany and in the rest of the world. We'll pick up the rest of the open letter uh, in our next episode. But right now, I think that is... That got us pretty far, um, looking at the next walls. And we'll try to give a better sense of um, how to avoid the tanks um, at the Vatican walls (laughs) as well. Rolling into the Vatican. uh, So thank you to Josh. Uh, Thanks to St. Paul Lutheran Church. And we want to also recognize the materials that were helpful for us today. Of course, took a look at Wikipedia. Uh, There's an old... uh, Elsie Singmaster put out a book called Martin Luther, The Story of His Life. Uh, that was helpful. Hannah S. Bowers over at co- coffeeshopthinking.wordpress.com. She had some really good uh, articles in there. And uh, you know, I don't know the nature of her, her, her blog, but she has some very thoughtful uh, you know, writings on there. And I really enjoyed that. In the Vatican website, uh, they offer the Roman Catholic teaching on the role of the laity and the role of the priesthood. Also, if you want to read uh, to the Christian nobility of the German nation concerning the reform of the Christian estate, it's found in volume 44 of the American edition of Luther's works. Okay, and you can contact us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Graceontap-podcast.com is our website. Or you can catch us on Facebook at Grace on Tap, uh, Podcast. So if you on the Facebook search uh, bar just type on Grace on Tap, you should be able to find us. And it's at Facebook where we uh, post whenever new episodes are available. And we also post our road trips. If you want to know where they are, you know, locations, that kind of stuff, that'll all be there too. And if you are interested in hosting a road trip, uh, send us an email and we'll see if it can work out. That'd we be- would appreciate any reviews you can post on itunes um any uh catholic theologians that want to write we are open to dialogue and debate as well absolutely cheers cheers